Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. We want to welcome you to the auditorium of AccessibleWorld.org. The date is Tuesday, March 22nd, uh, 2011. One of the most significant decisions ever made by an American president was made by President Abraham Lincoln. It was made public in September of 1862, and it came as a shock to North and South alike. The decision was to issue a proclamation of emancipation, effecting slavery in states that refused to join the Union by January 1, 1863. What forces brought that decision about since the president had consistently proclaimed, uh, since even before he was elected, that slavery would remain untouched, even in the event of war in the states where it existed? What events and what kind of questions were raised within the Lincoln administration or in Congress to bring about the proclamation of emancipation? What were the ramifications of that proclamation once it was issued? Was the proclamation primarily political or moral or both? As in part one of this presentation, the nature and result of President Lincoln's decision rather than the progress of the Civil War is the emphasis. The war itself is only the background rather than the theme of the presentation. We thank you for joining us uh, on this presentation on Tuesday, March 22nd, and, and uh, join, joining us and helping us to turn that presentation into a challenging discussion once the presentation has concluded. Thus, we can be students together and learn from one another. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my great privilege and honor to introduce a gentleman who is a student of history, but who also is a great teacher. It's my privilege to introduce at this time Mr. Edwin Cooney. Ed, the microphone is yours. Thank you very much, Bob. One of the um, advantages to being a student of history is that at least on some level you, you, you don't, you're not too tied to scholarship. Uh, that means I can openly, without having to document it, um, uh, offer my own conclusions about things and people can say, well, I mean, he's looking at it the wrong way or he hasn't studied it enough or whatever, and that's still okay because I'm, I'm just a student. Um, uh, many years ago, I, I remember a speaker talking about um, non-scholars. I'm, I'm kind of a non-scholar. And, and I like it that way because I, 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 I feel comfortable with it. I, I feel comfortable discussing these things with people. Um, and I say that now because, or at this point, because I, I have to say openly that I am very pro-Lincoln. Um, now, I don't love anybody, including Abraham Lincoln, because he's perfect. But uh, I think uh, even when you read the sternest criticism, it's pretty difficult to think anything but this was an amazing man. Uh, you know, most people, when they vote for president, have only the vaguest idea of who they're voting for. And believe it or not, that was much truer in 1860 than it is now. You know, very few people knew who Abraham Lincoln 
really was. And they knew less about him than they did, you know, looking at his picture or, or, or you know, hearing him on the radio, as they eventually could with President Erling of the 20th century. Now you can hear them on the radio, on the internet, and see them on television. And they become something of a personality. You can decide uh, almost intuitively whether you trust them or whether you don't. It doesn't mean you're right, and you can be fooled. But not very many people knew who Abraham Lincoln was, this, this prairie lawyer, this, this um, well, this politician. You know, from the moment that the attendees at Ford's Theater on the night of April 14, 1865, heard the crack of John Wilkes Booth's Derringer, Abraham Lincoln went from being a politician to being a statesman. But Abe Lincoln was very much the politician, and, and, and he never ran from it. He, he never apologized for it. Now, a good politician listens to, and to some degree, reflects the people that he represents. Um, and, of course, he responds to conditions in politics. One time, uh, Lincoln went to a meeting, and uh, he... Uh, uh, Somebody suggested that uh, he was two-faced. He was a two-faced politician. And Lincoln responded to the charge of being two-faced. He said, now I'm going to leave it to you. If, you. if I had two faces, do you think I'd show you this one? Last time we talked... We covered the achievements of our prairie president in 1861. There were essentially four major achievements, the decisions that Mr. Lincoln made, what he accomplished in making those decisions. The first thing Mr. Lincoln did was to establish his presidential authority over some of his cabinet members. You know, most of his cabinet members had more experience as administrators, in the federal government, in the House, in the Senate, than he did. And although they were bound to follow his leadership, they always suspected in one way or another that they were a little more experienced. And Lincoln let them feel that way, while at the same time exercising his priorities. The second thing he accomplished was to maneuver the South into starting the war. Now, I, I reemphasize this. Actually, I had a little feedback from, from one of you uh, as to um, what was so significant. Wondering, and I hadn't emphasized enough as to what was significant about the way the war started because I failed to emphasize that when Abraham Lincoln became president of the United States, seven states... South Carolina, Georgia, Florida, Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and Texas had already seceded, and the Confederate States of America had already launched itself. Now, you remember that in, that in his inaugural address, President Lincoln promised that 
he would not have sailed the South. The South could not have a conflict, could not have a conflict, conflict, I'll, I'll say the word right, could not have a conflict unless it, it, it was itself the aggressor. And Lincoln kept that pledge. The first, you remember the first, uh, the first uh, uh, challenge he faced was the status of, so of Fort Sumter in Charleston Harbor. And he decided that he would simply, you know, reinforce or you know, uh, resupply, not, not, not rearm or, 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 or send more troops or, you know, more ammunition or whatever. He would just simply resupply the fort. And in April of 1861, he informed, now this is significant, he informed the governor of South Carolina not the president of the Confederacy, that he, it was his intention to, to um, uh, simply just resupply Fort Sumter. And the South Carolina governor went to President Jefferson Davis of the Confederacy. And it was Davis's order that Beauregard fire on Fort Sumter on April the 12th of 1865. And this was significant because it sent a message to the world that the South and not the North was the one that was most interested in conflict. The third thing that the president accomplished was the suspension of, well, in the way an accomplishment, but his third major decision was to suspend habeas corpus. To <clears throat> withdraw the right of immediate trial upon arrest. Washington was being besieged, and so he suspended the right of habeas corpus. And some people who were responsible for cutting off Washington from the north um, spent a considerable time in jail. And the fourth thing that he accomplished in 1861 is, is that he established the forces of Union in the four major border states. Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. And we'll talk a little bit about that. That was important. Remember, Lincoln said, of course I hope to have God on my side, but I must have. Kentucky, because Kentucky, extending as it does along the Ohio River, was vitally important to military success. There was, however, one issue that simply would not go away, and the issue was slavery. Lincoln stated in 1861 that the purpose of the struggle, if there was to be a struggle, would simply, simply be the preservation of, of the Union. He made it clear in his inaugural address and in statements afterward that he would not interfere in the states where slavery existed. He was merely interested in the preservation of the Union. 
On Friday, the 24th of May, 1861, only a little more than a month after the Civil War began, Major General Benjamin Butler of Fortress Monroe in Hampton, Virginia, received a family of slaves and granted, and granted them um, exile. Their owner, under a flag of truce, the following day asked for their return under the Fugitive Slave Act, which was part of the California Compromise, the 1850 California Compromise. And Major Butler reminded that slave master that his state was in rebellion. The Fugitive Slave Act no longer applied, and he refused to surrender the slaves. Now, on Tuesday, July the 30th of 1861, Butler wrote a message to the War Department. And he asked three or four important questions. Was this family of slaves free? Was this family of slaves property? And if they were property, whose property were they? If they were the property of their saviors, of those who had granted them exile, the saviors wouldn't accept such property. So what are they? Interesting questions. They went to Secretary of War Cameron. And you can be sure that Mr. Lincoln got the message. On August the 6th of 1861, Congress subsequently passed the first Confisc Confiscation Act. Slaves would be considered contraband only if they were directly involved in the service of the Confederate Armed Forces. That was the only basis on which they could be, and which they could be uh, confiscated. That, in all cases, was not easy to tell. It was a rather vague law. Lincoln signed it. Congress went along with it. Keep in mind also that at the end of July and early part of August 1861, the Congress reissued and even the most radical Republicans in Congress <clears throat> signed on to the idea that preservation was the purpose of the struggle. This was a people's war. Invariably, of course, you'll recall it got more complicated. Now, I'm going to go over this briefly because I did discuss it last week, or last, last month, back in February. In July of 1861, President Lincoln appointed John C. Fremont, the first Republican presidential candidate, a very handsome, gregarious man, known as the Pathfinder. He, he had um, uh, 
Uh, he had uh, surveyed much of the West. He was uh, something of a, uh, a gallant, you might say. He was the first Republican presidential nominee. And um, he appointed John C. Fremont, head of the Department of Missouri. Missouri was a crucial, one of those crucial states that had, had agreed to stay out of the Confederacy. And he sent Fremont to Missouri. And Fremont proceeded to lose the confidence of just about everybody in the whole state of Missouri because he paid more attention to his, his uh, personal needs than he did to his business. But he was adamantly anti-slavery. On the 30th of August, 1861, Fremont issued a statement of emancipation. All the slaves in Missouri were to be emancipated. The, situ when the military situation was desperate. He declared martial law. He announced that the death penalty would go into force against those who, the guerrillas, if they were found behind, behind Union lines in Missouri. Lincoln was disturbed because a number of the legislators and governors of the border states were very nervous about the possibility that their slaves could be emancipated if this went into effect. And Lincoln sought privately Lincoln privately uh, sought to um, um, have Fremont withdraw or rescind his order. And Fremont refused. And on the 9th of September of 1861, he even sent his wife. His wife was, a, was, a, was the daughter of um, Thomas Hart Benton, who had been a member of the United States Senate, an old Jacksonian Democrat for about 30 years. And he sent his wife, Jessie, to... Um, Ask Link or to insist that the Emancipation Proclamation, that his Emancipation Proclamation, um, uh, not be withdrawn. And she met Lincoln at the White House, and uh, she was quite fierce in her defense of her husband, and explained that her husband understood the situation much better than the president did, and it took all of Lincoln's patience. Uh, not to be, not to lose patience with her. And on the on the on September the 11th of 1861, Lincoln publicly withdrew Missouri's uh, uh, Emancipation Proclamation, much to the relief of those in <clears throat> Kentucky, Maryland, and Delaware, and throughout the southern districts of Ohio, and so forth. So by the end of 1861, even with the losses at Bull Run and Ball's Bluff and the first battle of Fredericksburg, as bad as the situation was, at least the northern states were stabilized. On Thursday, March the 13th, 1862, 
the Congress passed the second act, the second uh, act of confiscation, which forbade military offices, officers from returning slaves to the South. In other words, once a slave was captured, he was free. It said nothing as, as, as the Confiscation Act number one about what the status of those slaves were, but they were not to be returned to their masters. So gradually, very gradually, the Congress is moving toward slavery as an important issue, as a significant issue. On Thursday, May the 10th of uh, Thursday, April the 10th of 1862, Congress passed a resolution calling, and this, and Lincoln had encouraged this. Congress passed a resolution calling for compensation for slaves, for the emancipation of slaves, even in the free states. And these again are those four states that we talked about: Delaware, Maryland, Kentucky, and Missouri. Lincoln had suggested this for the first time in his annual message to the Congress in December of 1861. He felt that slavery would invariably die away as a useful institution. And further he felt that once slavery had been eliminated, in the northern states, that the South would realize that slavery was doomed and its resistance would be less intense. On July the 17th, 1862, Congress passed the Militia Act. And this is key allowing for blacks to become members of the armed forces. Since 1792 or 1793, blacks had been actually um, forbidden to become members of the armed forces of the United States. And this rescinded that. Two days later, Congress packed, passed an act abolishing slavery in D.C. And, and in all territories throughout the United States. So you can see Congress is, is moving closer and closer and closer all the time. And so is Lincoln. Lincoln is seeing more and more that the cause of the Civil War was, after all, slavery. And that the only way that the conflict would ever come to an end, allowing for reunification, would be if slavery were abolished. He's not ready to say this publicly. In fact, in some cases, he appears to contradict himself. But as of July and early August of 1861, he's still on the record that the purpose of the struggle is the preservation of the Union. Now, on Sunday, the 13th of July, 1862, 
in a carriage on the way to the funeral of Secretary of Stanton's little boy, James, President Lincoln tells Secretary of State Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells that he's thinking about issuing an emancipation of proclamation. He's been negotiating with the governors and legislatures and, and, and members of Congress from the four border states for some months and he's losing his patience. The Congress passed that resolution in, 18, in, in April a sense of the Congress that the Congress would support laws if the states would only pass them in which it would purchase freed slaves at about $300 a head. But the border states weren't going anywhere. And Lincoln was getting frustrated. Now, As early as, in early August of 1861, Horace Greeley of the New York Tribune wrote an editorial called The Prayer of Twenty Millions. And of course the prayer of twenty millions was that the president issue an, um, a statement of emancipation. And even as Lincoln was thinking about it, he wrote the following to Horace Greeley. My paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not either to save or destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. On Thursday, on Thursday, August 14th of 1862, Lincoln held a, com uh, a, a conference at the White House with some prominent black leaders in Washington, D.C. During that conference, he proposed or advocated the colonization of slaves. He said, you know, the time is coming when I'm going to have to make a decision on your future. And he said, whatever you or I think about this, your emancipation will not mean your social liberation. I'm not quoting him. This is generally what he said. He said, I couldn't change it if I would. Your freedom will make you less valuable as a people, is essentially what he told them. And you'll be subject to harassment. 
Now, some of these leaders were indignant, and some leaders who heard about it were particularly indignant, indignant especially Frederick Douglass. He accused the president of insensitivity, of racism even, of not being interested in the fate of, the, of black people. After all, the people who met with Lincoln at the White House considered themselves as American as was Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln couldn't compel them, nor did he ever try to compel them, to leave the country. However, in, 1862, in, in the summer of 1862, he did appoint the Reverend James Mitchell of Indiana to a post in the, in the War Department to pave the way for those who wanted to immigrate from the United States to do so. Um, Eventually, about 450 slaves would um, uh, be sent to um, Valio Avajij, which is an island just off the coast of um, Haiti. They would leave in 1863, but the colony failed. And by mid-1864, the governor or the president sent the Navy to rescue them and to bring those who had not been sickened or who had not died from smallpox and so forth back to the United States. So while he's considering emancipation, he's considering colonization. Now Lincoln... has been portrayed by some in comparison today as a racist. Now perhaps it's because I don't want to think so, but I don't think Lincoln was a racist. Lincoln reflected his time and the overwhelming attitude of the American people. <clears throat> was that the races should be separated. Lincoln, however, believed that the problem that had brought this situation to a head was that we'd gotten too legalistic about it. Lincoln firmly believed, as naive as it may appear to be to some, Lincoln firmly believed in Jefferson's statement in the Declaration of Independence that all men are created equal. That they were endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And that among these rights are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That was the decision of the creator. Socially, it was a different matter. And Lincoln regret, regretted that socially it was a different matter. That's why in his debates with Stephen A. Douglas, he openly agreed that according to the mores of our society, blacks were not equal. But he said they were equal in the eyes of God, 
when it came to the right to live and to love and to grow <clears throat> and to be, and to, be to be guaranteed the rights of citizenship. But culturally, they were unequal. But that was different. Abraham Lincoln, as, as you would come to realize, Abraham Lincoln saw the Declaration of Independence as the spirit of the country. In some ways, he and Secretary of State Seward agreed that there was something, there was an entity even more powerful, even more significant than the Constitution. And that for Lincoln was the Declaration of Independence. And he never moved from that. Lincoln again was a politician who could accommodate to situations. But those situations didn't change the fundamentals. On Friday, the 22nd of August, 1862, Abraham Lincoln read the first draft of the Emancipation Proclamation to the cabinet. And he didn't ask them whether or not they approved of the act. He did, however, invite them to advise him on, on how it could be most easily effectuated. Secretary of State Seward pointed out that as the president had himself suggested, the timing, would, the timing was important. There had to be a major union victory before, the emanci before an emancipation could be announced. And therefore, on the 17th, there came on the 17th of September, 1862, the Battle of Antietam. Robert E. Lee invades the North for the first time. He's in Maryland. He goes to um, Antietam Creek. The South called it the Battle of Sharpsburg. And in about two days' time, there are about 23,000 casualties. Including about 12,000 deaths in 24 hours. But the South is driven from the soil of the North, and therefore you can call it a victory. And so on Monday, the 22nd of September, 1862, Abraham Lincoln issued his Emancipation Proclamation as an executive order. This is important to keep in mind. This was not a law that could be passed by Congress, that was passed by Congress. It was an executive order. Excuse me. As commander in chief of the armed forces, of the army and the navy, it stated that those in rebellion against the United States, if they came back into the Union by January the first, before January the first, eighteen sixty-three, they could retain their slaves. Afterward. 
their slaves were henceforth and forever free. Now, as you can imagine, this this proclamation of emancipation received considerable ridicule. People said, wait a minute. Think about this for a minute. Lincoln is freeing the slaves in areas over which he has no control. How can he be doing this? He's not freeing slaves in Delaware, in Maryland, in Kentucky, or in Missouri. What, what, what sense does that make? Actually, it made much more sense than people realized. Because if the South persisted in maintaining slavery, it would be militarily destroyed. Because after all, that was the only way that you could enforce it, is to destroy those sources that supported slavery. It's railroads, it's plantations, and even in and demoralize the institution of slavery. The, 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 you know, there were, only a, there were only about 300,000, well, about 375,000 families in the whole South that owned slaves. There were about 400,000 slaves. I'm, I'm sorry, 4 million slaves. There are about 385,000 families who own slaves. Out of a population of 9 million, that was less than a tenth of the whole population of the South that actually owned slaves. Of course, it was the leadership. It was the, it was the aristocracy. But it was a small percentage of the population. So, not everybody, but it was, as I say, it was, it was the, 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 the corner of slavery. Um, so the Emancipation Proclamation was signed on Thursday, January the 1st of 1863, following a day, you know, it was an, it was an annual event at the White House to receive uh, visitors every New Year's Day. And the President spent most of the day shaking hands with visitors. Spent about four hours shaking hands. And it was only after the reception that he went up to his office to sign the Emancipation Proclamation. And his shoulder was so sore that he, he, his hand trembled when he picked up the pen to, to, um, to write. But he did sign it. And it became law. On March the 3rd of 1863, the President signed the Conscription Act. That was an act allowing for the drafting of men between ages 20 and 45. It was a complicated, it was a complicated, it was a complicated piece of legislation, and it became very unpopular, especially among the poor. And um, 
about a month after the, amount, the Emancipation Proclamation was signed, and about the time he signed the Conscription Act, President Lincoln told Charles Sumner of Massachusetts that his greatest concern was not military, but political. It's what he called the fire in the rear. Remember I said that the Emancipation Proclamation was primarily a military command. Its power was as a war measure. Its drawback was as a political measure. Because, because anti-war Democrats in particular began to press the idea that the Emancipation Proclamation, that the war was all about, and I hate to use this word under any circumstances, but it was the word they used, niggers' rights. And one of the most powerful advocates of this was a congressman from southern Ohio by the name of Clement Laird Volandigam. He was elected to Congress in 1858, and he was defeated for re-election in 1862. He was from Dayton, Ohio. He was representing the area of Ohio uh, that included Dayton. He was an old Jeffersonian, Jacksonian Democrat. His slogan was to return to the Union as it was 40 years ago. He said that Lincoln and his rich bankers and so forth were simply trying to dominate the little man, the farmer. And when his term ended in Congress in March of 18. 65, he began to campaign not only against the, the Emancipation Proclamation, but against the efforts of the armed forces itself. On Friday, the 1st of May, 1863, Volandigan spoke at Mount Vernon, Ohio, and he attacked the Lincoln administration and he attacked the army. Now, one of the things that these Peace Democrats were doing, they were distributing newspapers and letters <clears throat> around army camps in southern Ohio, in southern Indiana, and southern Illinois, suggesting that soldiers weren't really fighting for the country, but they were fighting, again, I despise this word, but for niggers. And it was having an effect Ulysses said, Ulysses S. Grant, in fact, had to abandon a couple of regiments because boys started going home. In the spring of 1863, General Ambrose Burnside, who had been for a brief time the head of the Army of, of, of the Potomac and was later assigned to be the head of the Army of, of, of Ohio, uh, issued order number 38, saying that anybody who, who inhibited the actions of the army would be subject to arrest and subject to conviction 
of treason, subject to the death penalty. And so on the 1st of May, 1863, Vallandigham deliberately courted arrest, and he was eventually arrested, and he was charged. Under General Order 38, uh, which outlawed the right to speak out uh, against the army in a, in a military district. Um, soldiers went to his home in the middle of the night and arrested him. They had to break into the house. They took him off on May the 6th. He was, court, he was brought before a court-martial tribune, and of course he was convicted. Lincoln wasn't happy about the situation. He agreed with Ambrose that certainly, with, with Burnside, that, that, that um, uh, he had to be stopped, that Vallandigan had to be stopped. But he didn't want to see him being made up as a martyr. He thought it was very dangerous. And so he commuted the sentence that the court-martial court, or that the, that the court um, uh, issued on Vallandigham from imprisonment to banishment. He sent him to the south. Vallandigham, by the way, went from the south to Bermuda and back to Canada. And while he was in Canada, he announced that he would be a, he would be a candidate for governor of Ohio. And I'll... I'll get right to the quick and, and tell you that he was badly defeated in November of 1863 when he ran for governor of Ohio by a war Democrat by the name of John Bro. But in the absence of military victory, the results of the, the, the um, what's the word I want, the um, backlash from the emancipation proclamation was very, very, very strong. And in the absence of military success, it could have meant doom for the president. But as your history books will remind you, in the spring of 1863, there were two major military victories. Grant at Vicksburg, and eventually the Battle of Gettysburg, which of course lessened some of the tension. Uh, meanwhile, the question of um, blacks in the armed forces was established. In May of 1863, Abraham Lincoln established the Bureau of Colored Troops. This is to look out for the rights of black troops. Um, at first, they were paid less than white troops. Uh, the government initially, originally took money from their, their salary to, to purchase their uniforms and so forth. This was eventually corrected in 1864. Uh, and of course, they became a part of the 54th uh, Massachusetts Regiment, which was specifically established in the spring of 1863 for the use of black troops. 
And of course, more and more and more slaves began to leave their plantations and join the military effort. As I said to you, for Abraham Lincoln, the spirit of the nation was of much greater importance than even the legal basis of the nation, the Constitution. And I go back to uh, the time of the um, Declaration of Independence. That's why Lincoln's Gettysburg Address was so significant. It's very short, and I want to read it to you. Listen to what he says and what he bases this whole thing on. Okay, it's the fall of 1863. There's been victory at Vicksburg. There's been victory at Gettysburg. The Union, or the, the Confederacy has been cut in half. The Mississippi is free once again. And although much more has to be done, they're off to a, a good start. Uh, Admiral Farragut uh, had invaded Mobile by that time. New Orleans much of, and much of Louisiana was in federal hands. And Lincoln went to Gettysburg. to dedicate a portion of um, that battlefield as a cemetery. And this is what he wrote, or this is what he said. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty, and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we, are in great, now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live, is, it is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men living and dead who struggled here have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will, will the world will little note, no longer nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us, the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated. to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead, we take increased devotion 
to that cause for which they here gave the last full measure of devotion, that we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, and that government, wait, and that this nation, under God, shall have a new birth of freedom, and the government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. Notice, he refers more to the spirit of the nation than he does to the laws of the nation. You know, in, in his annual message to Congress in September, in November, or, I'm sorry, in December of 1862, he talks about, so our case is new, we must act anew. And he talks about the fiery trial through which we're passing. Ladies and gentlemen, I mean, my fellow, my fellow citizens, he said, we cannot escape history. We of this Congress, we of this administration will be remembered in spite of ourselves. No personal significance or insignificance can spare one or another of us. The fire of trial, the, the, the fiery trial for which... The, fire, the fiery trial through which we pass shall light us down in honor or, or dishonor to the latest generation. We here bear the power and hold the responsibility. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best effort on earth. Now that ties into the emancipation or to the um, Gettysburg Address. For he says, this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom. That means that the nation would be free without the original mistake of slavery. It had to happen. As I said earlier, President Lincoln had tried to get the governors and representatives of the four um, states to the, the states that remained in the Union, the border states, to agree to um, emancipation compensated emancipation. The president said it at about $300 a slave that it would cost no more than about three months of the war. So, what do you do? The challenge was clear. It was a spiritual challenge as much as it was a legal challenge. And I think that that's what Abraham Lincoln came to mean to the country came to mean to the country. Now, of course, 1864 saw more success on the battlefield. Atlanta fell, and Sherman began to march his way to the sea. The South was breaking up. The economy was going to pieces. And, of course, victory was near. Lincoln was re-elected by a large majority. You see, by not rejoining the Union when they were invited to do so, when he issued the Emancipation Proclamation, the South lost all of its political power. Because once there would be no reward for those four border states to break away, as the South decreased, the value of their slaves became less. And the country was no longer willing to pay to free the slaves. 
they were going to be free. On Saturday, January the 31st of 1865, his election secure, President Lincoln, well, in January of 1865, his, his election secure, uh, President Lincoln began to campaign open, openly for the adoption of the 13th Amendment to the Constitution. It had been passed in the Senate uh, in 1864, but it had failed by about 10 votes in the House of Representatives. The Emancipation Proclamation, which would free the, which would free the slaves, needed a two-thirds vote in the House of Representatives. Now, Lincoln could have waited um, for the next Congress, which had a majority of Republicans in both houses. But he decided it was important enough to free the slaves with the old Congress. He wanted as many Democrats to be involved in it as possible. And so he began some old-fashioned politicking. And on January the 31st of 1865, the 13th Amendment was passed by a, major, by, by a majority of two votes. 119 to 56. It took that much. It was finally passed. Now, you know, a president normally does not sign a constitutional amendment. The president's signature, it's the president's signature is not required for a constitutional amendment. That can be between the Congress and the people. It's a two-third majority, a two-thirds majority in both the House and the Senate, and of course it's a three-fourths majority in the states. And especially without the South, the Republicans, the radical Republicans, had more than enough to pass it. But Lincoln would, of course, work for <clears throat> its ratification by southern states when they came back into the Union, except that he didn't live to see this come about. I firmly believe that Abraham Lincoln was the spirit that brought success in the Civil War. I think there was a special bond between the president and the, and the vast majority of people, especially in the North and in the West, despite all the troubles. Early in 1862, Mr. Lincoln realized that he was going to ask, have to ask the people for more volunteers. Then it joined the forces in 1861, and I'm going <clears throat> to, and he was a, a little hesitant but he finally put the call out in July of 1862 for 300,000 more volunteers. And he wasn't sure as to what the response was, would be. James Sloan Gibbons was a poet. He wrote this poem. It was published anonymously in the New York Evening Post on Wednesday, July the 16th, 1862. I'm going to read about three stanzas. In, in closing, I'm going to read three stanzas of this, this poem because I think it's beautiful. And I think it, 
I think it does reflect what Abraham Lincoln meant to his people. About eight different um, musicians would, would put the words to music and it would be sung throughout uh, the North, throughout the Civil War, and, and of course afterward. It's called, We Are Coming, Father Abraham. We are coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more. From Mississippi's winding stream and from New England's shore. We leave our plows and workshops, our wives and children dear, our hearts too full for utterance with but a silent tear. We dare not look behind us, but steadfastly before. We are coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more. If you look across the hilltops that meet the northern sky, long moving lines of rising dust your vision may descry. And now the wind and instant tears and cloudy veil aside and floats aloft our spangled flag in glory and in pride and in bayonets in the sunlight gleam and bands brave music pour we are coming Father Abraham 300,000 more if you look up all our valleys where the growing harvests shine. You may see our sturdy farmer boys fast into line. And children from their mother's knees are pulling at the weeds and learning how to reap and sow and sow against their country's needs. And a farewell group stands weeping at every cottage door. We are coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more. We are coming. We are coming. The union to restore. We are coming, Father Abraham, 300,000 more. Thank you much. Well, Ed, that's, Ed, that's a very well-prepared uh, presentation. I shudder to think of the hours of research uh, that went into this. Let's see if people have any questions, please. All I can say is it's extremely well done, Ed. I made it here, and I'm very proud that I did. Just a fantastic presentation. I made it right after you mentioned Fort Sumter, and <laughs> a little problem with my computer, but... Am I ever glad I made it? Wow, what a what a what a job well done. Thank you very much, Kurt. Good to hear you here. Oh, and thank you, Bob. Well, I guess I'll start out. Uh, you present a great case for Abraham Lincoln, who, um, much as I'm a Roosevelt guy, 
I must say, must be number one because he saved the union. He never wavered in that. Um, you talk about in your newswire that slavery was moral, political, or could it be both? Um, you know, the issue. Where I can see where Lincoln was an astute politician. He maneuvered the South with the Emancipation Proclamation. I understand that. Uh, but then, then you quote that if I have to save the Union and get no slavery, slave freed, I'm going to do it, whatever way it happens. What what statements can you find in Lincoln's writings? Uh, I know you you quoted the Lincoln Douglas debate and such, but a little bit. But work, what what statements can we find in Lincoln's writings where he morally deplored slavery? And Thomas Jefferson, yeah, I know about the creator business, but he owned slaves and he had an affair with a slave and so forth. And I'm disappointed in Jefferson in that area, but I know we're going to say he reflects the time. So it's a convoluted question, but where morally does Lincoln stand up and say, I oppose slavery personally? Well, he said that in the, in the Lincoln-Douglas debate, and, and, and um, he, um, you know, he said, if, he said if, if, if slavery isn't wrong, nothing is wrong. And... Um, he said that in the Lincoln-Douglas debate. Uh, I think where 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 uh, modern scholars and, and those who, who you know, focus on you know what was Lincoln's real attitude about you know blacks, I, I think where they I think where they missed missed the point is that Lincoln, to some extent, you know, Lincoln was you know they, they, for example he was referred to in the, in the Lincoln-Douglas debate. They referred to him as, as a black Republican. You know, trying to scare the people away from it, and so he did a bit of you know, reflecting of the times. But oh no, he he never for a moment thought that slavery was all right. Um, I, I think he knew that. Tech, remember, you know, uh, Abraham Lincoln is the only president to have um, a patent in the United States government. I mean, he knew something of technology. He knew that, that eventually the, this, this system of labor, this system of labor uh, was going to be obsolete. Remember that, that some, of the, some of the intellectual arguments in the 1850s and 60s was, was you know, Southerners argued that they took better care of their slaves than, than, the, money, than the moneyed interests up north took care of their workers. Yeah, they, they used to point out that, look, we keep our slaves whether we prosper or whether we don't. We feed them. We clothe them. You know, we train them. Whether or not we make a profit, we have to. So, you know, they used to argue for their system, um, you know, but Lincoln said it was wrong. And that, you know, since it had been allowed, since it had been allowed by the Constitution, I mean, to that extent, you had to support it because, you know, Supposedly, we, we, we protect all property. Lincoln didn't think that slaves should be property, but he knew that it was going to die out. In fact, in some of the proposals that he made, I hope I'm answering your question, and Bob, please, please follow up if I'm not. Um, but if, if, if he, you know, he... Um, he made suggestions such as, okay, look, 
pass a resolution or pa pass a law allowing for the emancipation of slaves, say, by 1882 or by 1900, and we'll compensate you for it. It's not right. Now, this was even before, remember, this was in, in, in March and April of 1862. This was before the Emancipation Proclamation. I really think, and, and I, I can't prove it, but from what reading I've done, I think Lincoln got sick and tired of trying to move these people, and they wouldn't move. And so, of course, he was subject to criticism. Well, you know, Lincoln can't even handle the people that, that are in the Union. How can he free the slaves? Well, and again, as I say, it was the... It was obviously the, the, the destruction of those resources that supported slavery, you know, in part, Sherman's march to the sea, that ultimately brought it to an end. You see, it was, slavery, slavery would die of its own weight. And so Lincoln thought, well, okay. If, I mean, if, see, the, iron, the ironic thing is that had the South, let's suppose the South had rejoined the Union. Okay. We'll rejoin the we'll end the war. They'd have gotten back into the House, they'd have gotten back into the Senate, and there would have been no end to slavery. Because certainly if the people in the border states weren't going to end slavery, the people in the in the old Confederacy weren't going to. And so by emancipating the slaves by announcing the Emancipation Proclamation, by it agitated the South. It literally tore its own institution to death out of its own fear. It didn't have the wisdom to say, hey, wait a minute, we need to sign on to this so that we can keep the status quo. That was the genius of the Emancipation Proclamation. Oh, thank you, Ed, very much. Ed, that was a fantastic talk. This is Don. I read years ago, and I don't know if it was American Heritage or what magazine that, in his, as a young lawyer, Lincoln had processed the uh, return of some slaves to the South, some escaped slaves. Now, people have told me that the, the, the owners were somewhat relatives of his wife who were from the South, or this was just an early part of the thing. But had you heard of anything like that? I'm embarrassed to say that I haven't. Um... Um, it has been charged that Lincoln was, I mean, that, that, that this is not the same thing, and so, no, I haven't heard of that specific thing. Um, I'd like to find it, though. I really would. I'd like to read it. And, and even if such is the case, um, it doesn't abrogate what he eventually did. But, I mean, it would, it would certainly, it would certainly, it would certainly support the conclusion that Lincoln was less than saintly on the subject of slavery. And, and, uh, uh, and that's okay with me. As I say, I don't love anybody because they're perfect or because they're consistent. Uh, but I, I, I hadn't heard that. There was some... In fact, I, I was reading a piece today um, on the Internet that pointed out that Lincoln was one of the 11 managers of the Illinois Society for um, Immigration of Blacks. Well, I don't exactly know what the, what, the, what the Society for the Immigration of Blacks in Illinois, 
uh, how, how, how significant that was, and that, at, that and that that was why he, you know, that, and that that was <clears throat> that as such, I mean, he, he that, that he wanted to rid the country of blacks. There was no way that was going to happen, and Lincoln was was too practical a man to, to think because you're talking about you're talking about the immigration and the cost to immigrate, you know, four million people. It wasn't going to happen, and. Um, you know, it's, it's part of the reason I believe that Lincoln was genuine when he said, you know, we, we've got a problem. You know, your emancipation isn't going to necessarily bring you peace. You know, I mean, you, you've got to, we've, we've got to find some way to protect you. And, of course, you get back to the, you get back to the point of the, of the not only the Emancipation Proclamation, but the passage of the 13th Amendment. If he wasn't interest in ending slavery or freeing the people or opening up opportunity, he, would, he certainly wouldn't have struggled as hard as he did to get the 13th Amendment to the Constitution passed. No, Donna, I wish I, I'd like to see that piece, but it, would it change? I don't think it would change me. Um, see, that's, that's why I'm a student rather than a scholar. It's a, yeah, well, you know, you're right about Lincoln. If you, you can't uh, fault him. He was the driving force of emancipation eventually, he, even if he wasn't an abolitionist. I don't think you could have called him an abolitionist and a fanatic like Sumner and, and some of the other northern uh, radicals were, but he, he, uh, he certainly was the driving force. I hadn't heard that about the 13th Amendment. That's very interesting. Okay. No, I hadn't either. That's really good. Uh, any other questions, please? Where's Luis? He's a, he's a he's a student of history back here. I'm right here, Bob. Um, no, I don't, surprisingly, I don't really um, have much to say tonight. Ed did a really, really, really good job with this one. I am I'm very impressed, and um, I, w I would only just like to add that you know, Abraham Lincoln was. It was a man standing at the gates of history, and he was in a very, very unique position, and he was the president during one of the most tumultuous times in this country's history. And one thing about the Emancipation Proclamation, an another driving force um, behind it, was the fact that because slavery was still so prevalent in the South, a lot of slaves were used to do all the grunt work, for the lack of better term, of the Confederate Army. And in emancipating the slaves, this took a big part of the workforce away from the Confederates. And they were made to fill their own sandbags, dig their own um, foxholes, build up their own fortifications, while the uh, slaves that they were using to do this were now free and were able to start migrating north to freedom and away from the south. That's a very good point. And of course, I read that, and it's one of the points that I didn't bring out strongly enough. Thank you, Louis. Um, Louise. Um, yeah, it, 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 and of course, you know, in, in slaves who, who joined Union forces, blacks who joined Union forces were, of course, in double jeopardy if they were ever captured. In fact, uh, Lincoln had to issue um, uh, a threat in May of 1864. 
64, I believe it was. I can't remember if it was 63 or 64. Uh, you know, threatening retaliation if, 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 um, if blacks were treated too badly. And there were a couple of instances. I think at Fort Pillow in Tennessee, um, uh, Nathan Forrest, Nathan Bedford Forrest, uh, was, was, was accused, he was a southern general, he was accused of, of um, executing blacks who had already surrendered. And so, I mean, it was, a, it, was a, it was a bitter time, no question about it. And, of course, so there were a lot of slaves who joined um, northern forces who, who, went into the, who went into the south as, as spies. Because, again, you know, a, a, a planter or, a, or, a, or a, you know, a, um, an official doesn't, doesn't know a northern black, can't, can't really tell the difference between a northern black and a southern black. And so uh, they just kind of blended in, and, and, they, and they did some spying, in, and, uh, including Harriet Tubman. So that um, uh, the situation was fluid for a long time. There's, there's no question about that. Okay, is there a final question here? Um, you know, you can talk all you wish, but I mean, officially, um, this is just so good. Uh, any other questions here? Yeah, this is Don. One last question is, what happened to the slave owners and the slaves in the border states? Were those slaves emancipated eventually or re recompensed, or did they have to have a separate emancipation? Oh, it was covered by the 13th Amendment to the Constitution, Don. Once that was adopted, their slaves were automatically free. You know, they, they were in a... You know, Lincoln needed the, 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 the border states to stay loyal, and of course they stayed loyal. Uh, and, and, of course, he offered them a reward for staying loyal. I'll buy your slaves. And uh, they, they just couldn't do it. You know, they just, they just, they had to keep their slaves. And, um, you know, by the time that the 1864 elections were history, and more and more Republicans were, were coming into Congress, uh, the less leverage that that link that um, you know the the representatives of these border states had, and and I really think that you know I, I they'd have been so much better off had they if had had they agreed to some form of emancipation. But no, once the Thirteenth Amendment was gone, their slaves were gone. I was thinking it about that poem, and of course that's the the thing tonight that particularly touched me. Um, so beautifully written in terms of what people were leaving, what they were giving, what they were yearning for, standing together, the idea of unity. We will give all of ourselves for this, for this cause to follow you. You ask, we'll come. I know we've had many wars, and I wonder if the feeling, if any like, anything like that would ever be written today. There's just something about this country, the way it was back then, that no matter how many people you can call up today and no matter how many people might go into the military for all kinds of reasons, I don't think it's the same as that ground roots, groundswell of people who say this is something we have to do in order to keep our land, our homes, our country, the country we have to fight for. I just... I was very touched by that, and I think, I just want you to know that I think you did an excellent 
presentation tonight. Very, very well done. Yeah, that, that he did. But certainly, Bonnie, in real life, that was a beautiful poem. And probably we couldn't say it today. <laughs> but uh, there were draft riots. You know, they didn't go easily. You know, the, the poem was great. Let's march into the sunset. They, they, he did get them, though. He got them, but there were draft, as I recall from reading, there were draft riots, and Rockefeller paid a substitute. He didn't want to go in. You know, guys were doing all kinds of things, but he did turn out the troops. We had the, the men. We had the resources. The South had the generals. Uh, Bob, thank you for, met, you know, it's, it's one of the things that, uh, you know, my, I'm still new at this, and I, and I apologize. I did some more stumbling tonight, but I mean, um, I think it was better than the last time, but... <laughs> but, it, but I mean, and I meant to mention the draft riots. That was, that was part of what they called the fire in the rear. Um, you're right. Uh, the, the, there were draft riots between July the 13th and 16th of 1863 in New York City. Um, I can't remember who it was, but the, in the estimates of the number of people, of the number of people killed, there were about 100 and, well, one estimate was as low as 120 people were killed. There were later estimates that there were two, there were two thousand killed and, and, and eight thousand wounded. Um, it was kind of a, yeah. I mean, not not only not only not only um, um, John D. Rockefeller, but I mean Grover Cleveland. Of course, um, Grover Cleveland uh, uh, purchased his, you know, I mean, he bought bought a substitute. There are probably, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's father, Theodore Roosevelt Sr., bought a substitute. I'm sure that embarrassed his son later on, but I mean, of course, he loved his father. But I mean, uh, Theodore Roosevelt Sr. Um, bought a substitute. Uh, and then, of course, another element of those, of those riots was <coughs> that immigrants felt that they were particularly susceptible to being drafted into the army, and the Irish in particular. And I mean the the, the the riots got nasty, and um, in fact, uh, uh, um, at one point they attacked an orphanage home for black children, and uh, most of the children got away, but they they burnt the place down. And, I mean, it, it was absolutely fierce, and it was at least in re some response to people like Volandigam. Who were going around the country saying, "Hey, you're not fighting for your country anymore. You're fighting for niggers." You know, this is this is not about some great principle. You know, this is this is about this is about black people. Um, there was one other point I wanted to make um, about that. Let's see, what was it? Um, do 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 do. Um, you know, it's kind of gone out of my mind, but. Uh, um, as I say, it, it got very, very, very nasty. And, uh, oh, I know what it was. Yeah, and Lincoln, you know, Lincoln had this way of, of, of asking the right question. Um, after Vallandigan was arrested, there was a group of Democrats from Albany, New York, who wrote Lincoln quite a letter scolding him for being less concerned about America and, be, and being more concerned about freeing the slaves. Uh, they were anxious to have peace. I mean, again, the, the, the peace Democrats, uh, there was, you know, they pulled out all the stops. 
I mean, everybody gets sick of war after a while. We got sick of the Iraq war. You know, it's easy, and of course, with what's going on in Libya, how long will we stand that if it doesn't come to an end? I mean, I don't know. Um, but be that as it may, uh, they took advantage of, of people's fatigue. And it was very, very, very powerful. That was that, that, was that fire in the rear. So, I mean, you, you, um, you had the draft riots. Um, but military victory meant everything. I think there was one other point I was going to make, and I've, I've, kind of, I've kind of lost the thread here. Well, Ed, on behalf of our special program series, we want to officially uh, end this. You guys can talk as long as you wish. Of course, this room is yours. Uh, but uh, never apologize, Ed. I can shake you. This was outstanding. You're, you're a great teacher, and you're, you present so well. And, oh, my gosh, there was just no stumbling. The, your, your presentation and your research eclipsed anything and that, that you would do. So you did, you did a beautiful job. I don't know. I'm not saying it well, but you really did. Uh, next week, uh, we have uh, Ira Fistel back to discuss a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. Bonnie's favorite author, Mark Twain, will be discussed. And I uh, hope you guys will come back and hear what he has to say. I'm plodding through that book. I've, I read it once a long time ago. Uh, maybe I'll finish it. I don't know. But I will finish yours, Don and Ed and everybody. Thank you so very much. You guys are fabulous. Great questions. Oh, my gosh. And I have an idea that we should use Ed's talents a little more. Let me conjure it a little bit here. <laughs>